as we talked about in the bulletin a few minutes ago, our, our strategy for helping people find and follow Jesus is what we call the nine habits. And it's broken down into those sort of nine practices or habits uh, because we believe that, that we become what we repeatedly do. Each of us in life someday will be what we are repeatedly doing now. It's just, it's just how people grow. So those nine habits are part of how we become a people individually, as families, corporately as the body of believers, perhaps in your marriage, perhaps in your home, whether you're married, single, whether you have a family or not, whether you've got kids or not, whether beyond all of those kids in your house kind of stage, wherever you are in life, we must become a people, an environment that helps people find and follow Jesus. So during this two-week series called Honest Work, We've been focusing on, on going from get, 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 consume, <laughs> because you don't just consume spiritual growth. It's just not how it works. We're going from get to give, from consumer to contributor. And so last week we talked about a part of that process is, is realizing that God has designed this place, this body of believers, as a place where we learned that. So committing to the church as a member in some sort of formal way for us, is to stand up and say, I'm a believer in Jesus and he's my Lord and Savior. And then you covenant with us to be a part of this congregation. You don't sign anything. There's, there's nothing more than that. There's just this public commitment to one another to be a member of this particular local body. That's what we talked about last week. And this week we talk about how we are called to pursue, to go after, to seek generosity. To seek generosity. Now, if you're a note taker, you may want to write this down. When we say pursue generosity, what we mean is that grace-filled Christians, people who understand that we have the blessing of God we don't deserve, that grace-filled Christians are meant to have an outward trajectory, an outward trajectory that leverages all of our resources that God has given us for the sake of others. That we do what Jesus did, that we have means at our disposal so that we can use them in an outward kind of trajectory because we understand and know grace because God has given us that grace. That's what it means to pursue generosity, to increasingly use all of our resources for that outward grace-filled kind of leveraging for the sake of God receiving glory so that our giving looks like Jesus. I mean, you want to know Jesus? You know what Jesus went through? You want to know what Jesus did for you? If you want to have a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for you, begin to give like Jesus gave. I mean, I guarantee you. Malachi 3.10, it works. It just flat out works. So we'll get to that a little bit later. Here's the thing, though. I know that like as soon as somebody like me stands up here, like a preacher stands and says, hey, we're going to talk about giving today. As soon as a preacher like mentions the word money, like in any form or fashion, a whole bunch of us out there sort of freak out a little bit and get kind of tense inside, a little bit, a little bit defensive and, and sort of, you know, go, uh-oh, <laughs> he's talking about that thing I don't like to talk about. Like on the inside of us, half of us are having this internal little sort of come apart emotionally right now. So, so I want to just kind of ease your fears a little bit because when it comes to money and church and even generosity in general, 
we, we don't need to continue to, to, to have this inward, got to keep it for myself, safety and security trajectory. We just, we just don't need to do that. We automatically get to that when somebody says anything like money, especially somebody like me standing up here. So chill out. We're going to make it real easy to understand the basic trajectory of our giving. When we hear somebody talk about money, we're a little bit like the, the girl who was given a, a, an offering for church. Little girl, her mom gives her a quarter, gives her a dollar. and says, hey, honey, when you get to church, you can decide what to go ahead and put in the offering plate, a quarter or a dollar, okay? And uh, so they go through church, and the little girl gives her uh, offering into the offering plate in children's church. And they're in the car afterwards, and the mom says, hey, honey, how did it go? What did you decide to give, the quarter or the dollar? Well, the little girl says, that man with the Bible up front said that God loves a cheerful giver. So I just kind of felt like if I give the quarter instead of the dollar, I'd be a lot more cheerful. <laughs> it's kind of how we like, we got we to gotta make sure we have this enough for us thing going on in life. We get real defensive and tense when we talk about money. But I'm going to make it real easy for you today, okay? I'm going to make it real easy. Real simple. The whole gist, put this out front so everybody can see it a little bit better here. The whole gist of today is that we want you increasingly to go from a personal trajectory of getting, because uh, that's basically where most of us probably are in practical terms when it comes to our finances. We want to continue to go from a personal trajectory of getting to a corporate trajectory of giving. Now, I understand different people are in different places with that. We'll get there eventually in the sermon today. Don't worry about it. Relax. <laughs> Some of you are like, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that yet. You don't know what I have to spend. You don't know what I have to put money into. You don't know how in debt I am. You don't know. I, I get it. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that eventually. But the basic gist is we want the trajectory to be from a personal trajectory of getting to a corporate trajectory of giving. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Here's how most Americans handle their money. It's real easy. One, two, and three. Spend. Save. And give. And spend basically has three parts for most people. It looks like this in America. Repay debt. For many people, that's number one in terms of spending. It's already spoken for. <laughs> Speaking of spoken for, pay taxes. And then the rest is to buy stuff. That's disposable income, that's groceries, that's everyday needs, that's kind of your general fund for everything you need to live on. It can even be insurance, gas, groceries, diapers, all those kinds of things. This is the gist of how most Americans spend their money. And this isn't just the ways, it's not just three or five, if you want to count it that way, ways that Americans spend money. These are actually the priorities and the order in which most Americans spend their money. Okay? We spend in those places and then perhaps, comma, hopefully, comma, we've got some to save 
and then we've got some to give. That's the basic gist about how most Americans spend their money. Let me go through this list one more time, (laughs) one more time, and put a little twist on it that will help us sort of understand where we're headed today. This is about me, mostly. That's, That's me. That's keeping me out of jail. That's sort of we, I guess we can call that. Um, And that's me. And that's me. And then this is God and others. Let me go through that again in case it's a little bit confusing. Me. Me. And perhaps also others who come after me, who I'm trying to save for, who will be around when I die. God and others. The basic trajectory of most Americans' financial stuff is put into these kinds of categories. That's how most Americans handle their money. This isn't just a list of the ways. This is the actual priority. And basically, it's all about me. We spend, we pay down, we pay up. And then hopefully, hopefully, we have some left to save. And after all that, perhaps... If there's any there, and and it's something that I think of, perhaps maybe when the plate comes by, if you get what I'm headed toward, the afterthought is this. That's how most Americans and and even believers spend their money, which means it's clear that the trajectory of one's money is usually directed a certain way, isn't it? The order of priority is a pursuit, most fundamentally, of self. And I get it. You've got needs. That's why that's there, right there. I I get it. You have needs. We all do. But the order of priority here is a pursuit of self. We'll come back to this later toward the end. But here's what it illustrates. Here's what it illustrates. And Jesus said this himself in Matthew 6, 21. This isn't just me talking. This is Jesus. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This isn't just me. This is Jesus talking. Which is to say, tweet this. Your checkbook is a theological document that tells the tale of who or what you prioritize as your first love. Let me say that again, because it's kind of deep, but it's hardcore important for us to get. Your bank statement, your checkbook is a theological statement about who or what You worship. So what does your bank statement say? (laughs) We're not going to raise our hands and talk out loud. Relax. But the question, what does your bank statement say about your loves, your life's priorities? It's a very Bible question. It's something that Jesus talks about and comes back to again and again and again. In the book of Malachi, like we just read in the Old Testament, Israel's bank statement, the people of God had a bank statement that showed that they were functionally robbing God. This was the afterthought. It's sort of like this. Sort of like this. And some of you know this uh, story. Uh, It's an old story that Paul Harvey told. Um, Some of the younger folks may not know who Paul Harvey was. He was on the radio for a hundred years and would tell us the rest of the story. Um, there's this famous story about a lady who called into the Butterball Turkey Company 
every November around Thanksgiving, the Butterball Turkey Company has a helpline <laughs> where you can call in and get help about how to prepare your turkey. Real famous story. Some of y'all probably heard this. I've probably told this story. So it's one Thanksgiving. This woman calls into the Butterball helpline and says, hey, I've got this turkey that's been sitting at the bottom of my freezer for 23 years. Gross. 23 years. Here's my question. Is it still safe to eat? <laughs> and and the, the turkey expert says, yeah, you can, you can go ahead and still eat it. It's safe to eat, but it's not going to be worth it because it's going to be terrible tasting. It's not going to taste good at all. All that taste was gone two decades ago. So, so the lady hears this from the turkey expert, and the lady says this. This is her response. She says, well, I mean, that's kind of what I thought. <laughs> I guess I'll go ahead and give it to the church. Afterthought. Afterthought. It was clear what that demonstrated about where her treasure was in a sense, right? That's where the Israelites were in Malachi. That's how they were approaching their giving in Malachi. They were, they were robbing God by offering blemished sacrifices. There were other examples and other ways too. But when it comes to their giving in the temple, they were offering these weak animals. They were supposed to be offering pure animals, the most costly animals, because this was an expression of their love for God. And they were bringing animals that were weak and sick, animals that they themselves wouldn't even consider actually eating. So that's the background. Read along with me. Malachi 3. Let's jump into the text. Malachi 3, verses 7 through 12 says this, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, in other words, this has been going on for a long time. It's generational. You have turned aside from my statutes because they were directed to bring pure, unblemished sacrifices. You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Malachi here is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he was sent to call the people back to God because their lives were far from him and they were giving to God, right here, leftovers, afterthoughts. Uh, Earlier in Malachi, God essentially says to the people, you're bringing me sacrifices you wouldn't even dare eat yourselves. They're so sickly and weak. They are costing you nothing. And what they say about your, your heart for me, God speaking to them, is, that, you know what, God, not so important to me. He literally says in the first chapter of Malachi, I will not accept an offering from your hand. I don't even want them, he says. Just keep them. I don't even want them. So there's this dialogue where Malachi the prophet comes and has this dialogue between God and the people. Look at verses 7 and following there. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Verse 7, return to me. He offers them forgiveness and hope. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The return word there means to repent, to turn away from the way they've been living, to turn toward God and his way of life. This was an offer of grace to them at this moment, despite the fact that for generations they had been bringing uh, something that didn't cost them, that demonstrated that, that their worship of God, that their heart was like not exactly in love with God as much as they were claiming on the outside. So to restore them to fruitfulness, to restore them to fruitfulness that comes from God instead of from their material hoarding, it says, but you say, verse 7, return to me, I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts, but you say, This is a little confusing at first, but I'll explain it. How shall we return? 
In other words, they didn't even get what God was saying. They're, they're saying, return from what? Like, return from what, God? They were that oblivious, that oblivious and unaware of them bringing something that, that didn't fall in line with a heart that loves to, to worship God. They were that oblivious to their sin of giving God their leftovers. <laughs> the, the question didn't make sense to them. So here's God's response. Here's God's response, verse 8, spoken through the prophet Malachi. Will man rob God? Well, of course not. Sounds like a preposterous question. You can't rob God because he already owns everything. And the Israelites knew this. They knew this. Yet, verse 8, you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Again, they didn't didn't even get it. How have we robbed you, God? He says, this is how. Verse 8, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. As we said, they weren't bringing the offerings that they were supposed to be, that they were commanded to in the Old Testament. We'll get to the command question a little bit later here. But they weren't bringing the 10% that the Old Testament law demanded. They were giving less than God had asked. And often when they did bring something, it was, it was damaged goods. It was undesirable. It was the turkey from the bottom of the freezer. It was an afterthought. And the problem wasn't just that they were robbing God of the best animal sacrifices. It's not like God needed their animals for the temple to work right. It was that he needed their hearts. And he was being robbed of the worship that he deserved because he alone deserves our entire heart as a way of speaking about all of our life's resources. So they were robbing him of the glory and the credit that he deserved. You see, listen, this is this relationship between God and his people was like a, a father and his children. This is something where he was giving to them, providing for them. He was saying, if you'll, if you'll just come this way with me, everything will be fine. And yet, the way they were bringing sacrifices to the temple flew in the face of that. Think of it this way. Imagine that you started and and built up uh, a company to the point where it was very profitable and successful. You had begun and built up this company that was very profitable, very successful. And imagine that you have five kids. Some of you are crazy and you have five or six. Um, Imagine you've got five kids, we'll say, and you've provided for these kids all their lives. You've fed them. You've clothed them. You've given them an education. You bought their smartphones. And, and these five kids, they come to you and they say, Hey, Mom, hey, Dad, uh, would you please invite us to be a part of the family business? Invite us into the family business. We know that you've worked all your lives to build this up, to prepare this successful company, to take care of me and my, kid and my, my siblings and, and our family. And so, so we'd like in. <laughs> so you look at these five kids and you say, No way, freeloaders, build your own business. No. You say, you say because you love your kids, you say, who would I rather share my riches with? My own own kids. And then you'd invite all five of them into the business. That's what God's done with his people Israel here. Now, now, now suppose, now suppose ten years later, 
the company has to close its doors. And you find out that the reason that it's going to have to close its doors and that it's no longer profitable is because those five kids of yours have been bleeding cash out of your company into their personal bank accounts, and it started soon after you invited them into the business. Like, how do you feel as a mom and a dad who has sacrificed and sacrificed and sacrificed for these kids? You feel robbed. You feel robbed. God is saying to his people here in Malachi 3, you don't even know it, but some of you are freeloading thieves. And so, so the fix is go from a trajectory of get, 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 by which you think you're saving yourself and being secure, to going increasingly toward a trajectory of give, that looks like Jesus, which is a trajectory of increased faith in who God is and his provision for you. So the fix is go from freeloading thief, go from consume, consume, consume to contribute. That's the fix. Uh, there's not another fix. You don't consume spiritual growth. You participate in it. Some of us still believe the lie that the American spiritual landscape has sold us, which is I can sit here and just consume it and not actually participate in it, and I'll grow to become who God made me to be. Lie. You can sit here your whole life for an hour and engage in worship and not really engage in worship. So the trajectory is only a fix of going from consumer to contributor. So, so he says in this context, verse 10, Malachi 3, read along. He says, bring the full tithe, not partial, not sickly animals, not what doesn't cost you anything, because they did have resources beyond what they were bringing that they could have brought. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, that we'll have everything we need, that all those around will as well. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. This is one of the rare places in the Bible where he explicitly says, test me in this. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, said the Lord of hosts. Then, then all nations will call you blessed. Then it will be a, a corporate witness to the world for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now let's talk about a Bible word used here a couple times in this passage that sort of freaks people out a bit. <laughs> We're going to talk about tithing. We're going to talk a little bit about what God expects of us. Is tithing still biblical? Is it still valid in the New Testament? We're not going to answer all those questions as much as we could. We could do a whole series on those questions. We're just going to talk a little bit about it. Before we get to the specifics, here's some history about what a tithe meant in the Old Testament. Okay? The tithe for the Old Testament believers in God was a fundamental giving unit that referred to one-tenth of a person's income that was given back to God. One-tenth of a person's income that was given back to God. Leviticus 27.30, if you can write that down, look at it later, we're going to put it on screen. Leviticus 27.30 here says, a tithe or a tenth, a tenth of everything from the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. The entire tithe 
of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, will be holy to the Lord. That's another part of that passage there. The tithe in the Old Testament was a non-negotiable. It was law. It was a part of their covenant relationship with God. It's part of how the people kept up their part of that relationship with God. And it was law. It was a command. Before you keep anything from yourself, notice, (laughs) before you keep anything from yourself, give a tenth to the work of the Lord. That's why they called it the first fruits. Now, there was actually more that was directed to be given free will offerings past that. Lots of scholars estimate that it was upwards of 20% probably for the average Israelite in that day, something like 22 to 3% of their giving. But the tithe was the part that was commanded. One interesting thing about this, it's a part of this history to know about before we get to the New Testament. If you look clearly throughout the Old Testament, the tithe was used to fund the work of the temple. Just like in Malachi, it covered the living expenses of the entire tribe of Levites who served at the temple, as well as all of the priests. In fact, estimates were that of that 10%, 80% of it, of 80% of the tithe that was given would go to what we today call personnel. And what was left after that was used for practical ministry needs, keeping the lights on, keeping the AC going. <laughs> they didn't they know what they're missing with AC. But maintaining the day-to-day ministry was what the tithe went to. And 10% of the nation's wealth is what went to them. Not 9%, not 8%. It took 10% less than the tithe was basically (laughs) unacceptable. I mean, this command was 10%. It's the first thing you do before anything else. It's the first thought. It's not an afterthought. So it represented less than 10% in the Old Testament, represented a personal robbing of God, a starving of the nation's worship. Now I know, I know that sometimes it's hard to get excited um, in our day and age about supporting what we call the general fund of the church. It's hard to get people excited about that sometimes. Uh, A lot of people don't want their money to go to overhead like light bulbs, curriculum, salaries, uh, but that's what the tithe went for then in general terms, the general fund. A lot of people come to a place like this and they say, beautiful facilities, it's got everything it needs, the AC is on, the lights are on, our pews are padded, our chairs will be padded. They look at a place like this and they say, oh, what beautiful facilities, they got plenty of money, let me give somewhere else. A lot of people just make that transition in their head without even stepping the door sometimes. But the simple truth today, as it was in Malachi's day, is that it takes about a tenth of a congregation's income to support the ministry of a church, no matter what size they are, whether they're 2,000 or 200 or 20. Light bulbs, Sunday school material, salaries are as important to the work of the kingdom here in Greenville, Tennessee, as it is somewhere else. We need to keep the lights on here just like they do overseas and just like you do at home. And when a congregation gives less than what is needed, they're making the same mistake in principle 
as those in Malachi's day, which, listen, it's not an argument for unwise spending. I'm not trying to make an argument for the tithe is a command today in the New Testament. We'll talk about that in a minute here. But, but let me just ask this question. What does God ask of us? It's a question that needs to actually be answered by you, by us. And what ends up happening for most people is it goes automatically not into the let me think about it and answer the question well or explicitly or intentionally or on purpose. It goes straight into here. For too many people, the question is an afterthought that's not well answered. So the question is, what does God expect of us today? And a lot of people say that was Old Testament. The tithe is not a command in the New Testament, which it wasn't. We'll talk about that. But what does God expect of believers today? Does, does he still expect believers to give 10% of their income? In basic terms, I'll give a few reasons why. There are other reasons. We could talk a lot about this. We're not going too much, but just three reasons why. I think in basic terms, the tithe is a good guide. It's not a law. It's not a command. We're not legalists. If you can't, you can't. We'll get to that. If you can, you can. We'll get to that too. But in basic terms, there are three reasons why, as a general guide, a tithe is a place to get to and to begin to start with. First reason, and this is just a a basic reason, it's the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament in some basic terms. Our giving is inspired not by law, but by love. That's different. Our giving is inspired by love, not law. When Jesus did away with the Old Testament, in a sense, (laughs) he didn't abolish it and get rid of it He fulfilled it, which means our motivations as New Testament believers is not because I'm standing up here and saying, thus saith the Lord. It's because you love Jesus in your heart and want to give out a motivation of love. That's what New Testament believers do with all of their actions, not just money. So the first basic reason is our giving is motivated and inspired by love, not by law. Second reason in the New Testament Tithing was already an accepted starting point. The first believers, the first Christians, continued the practices they had grown up with. People try to make an argument that they wouldn't have been doing it, but there's actually some evidence as to why they probably were starting at a tithe as a general guideline. Now, they weren't legalists, and we're not, and it's not a command, it's not a law. That's true. But there's some good evidence that in the New Testament, that was their accepted starting point. Jesus and his disciples would have done that. He talks about it in a couple places. Third reason why. And this is sort of the surprise reason that most uh, don't really expect. A third reason is that tithing is, is actually too limiting. Tithing is actually too limiting. If people gave 10% under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, when it was required by law, wouldn't under the new covenant where our motivation is love and Jesus has fulfilled all the commandments for us, wouldn't we want to give more under the new covenant as a response to God's grace? And in fact, that's exactly what we see the first Christians doing. In the New Testament book of Acts, we read that they sold their possessions as much as possible to support one another and the ministry. When Barnabas sold a piece of property, he gave 100% of it to the ministry of the local church. He brought the full amount to the sale, not as a pattern for all, but as a demonstration for him of his love for Jesus. 
Paul commended the Macedonians who gave beyond their means, he said. They were known as a poor congregation. And he actually commends them for giving beyond their means. So, the New Testament doesn't require tithing as a minimum because (laughs) for people who are infinitely in debt to a God whose grace forever covers our ugliest sins... 10% should feel like, let's just begin there. (laughs) That's why the New Testament doesn't. Now, it's true. The New Testament does not command, require tithing. It's not a law. But it clearly teaches us to give proportionately a percentage of our income. 1 Corinthians 16.12, look it up yourself, it's a good verse, 1 Corinthians 16.12 says on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. That last phrase, as he may proper, as he may prosper, is where we get the percentage, a proportion of the total income. That phrase, as he may prosper, means as a function of the rising or falling of your income. That's what that means as a function of the rising or falling of your income. Which, by the way, income is not just your week-to-week, what I get from my work paycheck. That's not income. That's part of your income. But, but many people have outside sources that are very much a part of their income. And that, that, that by the way, is included in the stuff that God owns, <laughs> for which we are to give uh, a proportional amount, a percentage So then, in the Old Testament as now, 10% serves basically a reasonable and a biblical beginning point. So how much is enough? Remember, tithing is not a command, it's not a law. You may sense at this point perhaps that God is asking something other than 10% of you. That's fine, that's okay, but, but, but don't let it be an afterthought. Be intentional. Believers are thoughtful and careful and intentional about their lives looking more like Jesus. This is, you're not called to be a butterball turkey Christian. Jesus didn't die to give you infinite riches so that you could be like, eh, whatever I do with my life's fine. He's meant for you to look like Him, to be a witness for it. So, so decide something. At this point, 10% may be too much. Fine. You may not be nowhere close to 10%. But figure it out. Be intentional. Decide something and begin there. A key part of this process that many leave out is that they do not have these conversations with wiser believers who have been on this road before them. Many people assume, it's just Jesus and me. I can take care of this myself. (laughs) That's a diminishing returns investment for the record. Having other wiser believers around you who have been down this road of learning to pursue generosity is a key piece of going from afterthought to intentional and careful. So for some people, 10% may be too much if you're not able to provide the basic necessities, pay for your debt, pay for your taxes. 10% may feel like an impossibility now or ever. Relax. That's fine. Relax. That's fine. 10% may not be doable. That's okay. The trajectory is the important part. 
Now, for some of you, 10% may be something that you can begin with. Find a percentage that's proportional. Start there. Keyword, start. (laughs) Start there. So many people get raises, get bonuses, get more from their investments, and their giving stays here. Afterthought. Last fruits. Now here's the thing about this. God says in Malachi 3.10, I dare you to try this. I dare you to try this. Test me in it. It works, he says. Test me in this. It doesn't just work as some sort of financial investment, though it likely will, because the health in your life that results from getting the, the, the priorities correct will mean financial health for you in the long run. But what if, what if instead of this being the order, it was the opposite? What if, what if for you and for us, increasingly as a congregation, from personal get, get, get to corporate give, these were backwards, and this was three, this was two, and this was one. This would be a first fruit. This wouldn't be an afterthought. This would be an intentional, careful way of using resources. And here's the thing. When you do it this way, let me tell you what results. You actually know what you should and could live on. <laughs> what, what, what mo- where most people are, let's be real, most people don't know what they should be living on because they do this backwards. Most people don't even know what percentage they need for the important things for day-to-day living. When you, when you do this the other way around, you put the priorities in the right kind of place so that you will continue to look more and more like what Jesus did for you, for us. If you did things God's way, you'd know exactly what you spend living expenses. As it is, most people don't even know that because they're handling their money upside down. They're spending on self first and then God and others is an afterthought. When we do that, guess what? We always overspend on self. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Friends, it's just Bible to say God gives us our life's resources, including our money, so that we would pursue a Christ-like trajectory of selflessness. You want to know Jesus. You want to know Him in greater depth. Give sacrifice like Jesus. And, And when you begin to do that, you've begun to pursue generosity. He says, test me in this. Malachi 3.10. God's saying to you, I dare you. Try God and others first giving. And see if I don't open up the windows of heaven and dump blessing on your life. This matters, friends, because we need, we need together to pursue a generosity. There's a lot of kingdom work to do. We have people to reach There are non-believers among us and outside these walls who are lost without Jesus. There are people who need to be fed and clothed and cared for. 
There are missionary families who need your support. Let's pursue generosity together and create with our resources a corporate witness that uses money wisely in a way that doesn't look like the world, that doesn't look like self, but in a way that looks like the grace given to us by Jesus. When we do that, we bring God glory and we grow. That's just how it works. We become a contributor and we grow. Let's pray, friends.